What does the needle in a sewing machine, the model of the atom, the theory of relativity, Frankenstein, the double helix of DNA, Yesterday by the Beatles, the movie Terminator, the periodic table, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, various Beethoven sonatas, Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones, the Underground Railroad, the conclusion of Handel's Messiah and Myers Park Baptist Church all have in common? Nothing. No, I'm just kidding, just kidding. These things may seem like they have nothing in common, but they all started as a dream. That's right, just like our church whose founders claim they were possessed by a dream. Many of the most important achievements in science, technology, art, music, film, and literature began with a dream. Today is Epiphany, the last day in the season of Christmas, which means it's the time when we reflect on the story of the coming of the Magi in the Gospel of Matthew. And even if the word Epiphany doesn't mean very much to you, most of us know the story of the Magi who traveled from the east following a star and arrived in Jerusalem inquiring about the child who was born king of the Jews. And then, of course, on Herod's orders, they made their way to Bethlehem to pay homage to the newborn baby with gifts of frankincense, gold, and myrrh. But what we don't talk about enough in this story is the fact that in Matthew's version of the story, Christmas really began with a dream. In fact, Jesus and the significance of Christmas were saved by a dream. Therefore, we can safely say today that Christmas is for dreamers. In our culture, to be called a dreamer is not always a compliment. Today, dreamer can refer to someone who has their head in the clouds, who gets lost in their thoughts or imagination, or worse, someone who lives as if they're asleep or unconscious all the time. In certain cases, we might call someone who has a lot of ideas a dreamer. But in the first century, a dreamer was a job, a vocation, an occupation, the title of someone who typically worked in the court of a king. And dreamers were called magus or magi, the root word of the word magician. Matthew's gospel is not the first time that the magi appear in the Bible we find magi in Genesis in the story of Joseph, the dreamer who became the magi for the Pharaoh in Egypt. Then they appear again in Jeremiah's description of the Babylonian court. We find them again in Daniel, who was a magi himself, and the book of Esther also has magi. And then suddenly they appear in the east at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew to see a star at its rising and interpret it to be the announcement of the birth of the king of the Jews. One interesting theory about the star that the Magi saw is that in 7 BCE, Jupiter and Saturn came into conjunction with one another on three different occasions. Jupiter was known at the time as the royal or kingly planet, and Saturn was thought to be the planet that represented the Jewish people. Therefore, the Magi may have interpreted this threefold alignment over the course of the year 7 BC to mean that the king of the Jews had been born because of the alignment of those planets. We have no way of knowing whether or not this is actually true. But we do now know a lot more about the Magi than most of us were taught as children. In those days, people believed the movement of the stars and the movement of the unconscious mind were both primary sources of divine revelation from God. 
The Magi were a cast of high-ranking religious and political officers in the Persian imperial court who served as astrologers and interpreters of dreams. As priestly advisors to the king of Persia, they read the stars and interpreted the dreams of the king to determine the will of the gods with the goal of trying to ensure the prosperity and productivity and safety and welfare of the king and the kingdom. At the time of Jesus' birth, the Persian Empire was engaged in an ongoing confrontation with the Roman Empire. The Persians did not believe that Rome had a legitimate right to occupy Israel, and Israel was extremely important to their safety and autonomy. It was the only buffer zone between Persia and the Roman Empire, and they knew if, if the Empire of Rome could invade and occupy Israel as they had, then Rome would be right on their doorstep, and eventually they would be next. And they were right. A hundred years after the birth of Jesus, Trajan invaded Armenia, kicking off a hundred years of war between Rome and the Persian Empire. But at the time, the star that the Magi saw rising was a sign of hope to the Persian people. A newborn king of the Jews, who was not Herod, who was not a bloodthirsty, loyal puppet of Rome, would be the fulfillment of the dreams not only of the people of Israel, but of their own people for deliverance from the aggressive expansion, invasion, and occupation of Rome. And so the Magi were not just following a star for spiritual reasons. They were also following their own hopes and dreams for freedom and liberation from the Roman Empire in the first century. And I love this depiction that we have of the Magi in the Gospel of Matthew, but I must admit that I'm rather skeptical of dreams. I have a hard time trusting that my dreams, or anybody else's for that matter, are a way that God is communicating with me. It is difficult to imagine something so surreal that takes place in our unconscious minds is an avenue of God's revelation. And my skepticism derives from how absurd my own dreams are and how difficult they would be to interpret. But also other people's dreams as well. I can't tell you how many times somebody has said to me, I had a dream about you last night and you're not going to believe what you did. <laughs> I try to laugh like they can't be serious right now, but some people act as if their dreams really happened to them. They get angry with other people for what they did in their dreams, which is strange considering Carl Jung said that everyone in our dream is a symbol and aspect of our own selves. So I feel the need to set the record straight today with a public service announcement. I am not responsible for what I do in your dreams. <laughs> and you're not responsible for what you do in mine. We are all forgiven. We're absolved for the sins we commit in each other's unconscious minds. But more troubling for me is that I've had a hard time dreaming at all lately. And it's really nothing to do with the skepticism I have of the unconscious mind as a source of divine revelation. You know, they're the dreams that we have when we're asleep, and they're the dreams that we have when we're awake. And it's that second time of dreaming that I'm having a hard time finding in recent months. Have you ever been in a season where you found it difficult to dream. The last three months have been one of those seasons for me. 
My mind hasn't been generating dreams the way that it usually does, at the rate that it usually does. And as I've reflected and prayed about this, I've realized it's because my mind has been so clouded by all the disappointments and devastations going on in our lives and in the world. Disappointment, devastation, death has the power to stifle our dreams if we let it. And we've experienced enough in 2023 that some of us may never dream again if we're not careful. The danger with disappointment and devastation is that the more we experience it, the more our minds begin to think that's what's always going to happen. If a person or a group of people or an organization or a church or a city or a nation disappoints us again and again, we start to think nothing will ever change. And when we experience that steady diet of disappointment in our lives from the same people and groups and organizations and institutions and states or nations or a country, we stop dreaming because we don't want to get our hopes up too high and then fall down so low again. For the most part, we know that as humans, we can't completely avoid disappointment in this life. But we imagine, tell me if you do this, we imagine that we can manage it if it comes in small doses. So we stop hoping and we stop dreaming so that we can keep our disappointment and devastation to a minimum. We know we can handle a little bit at a time, and so we lower our expectations and we lower the bar because our hopes are that if, if our hopes are lower, if our dreams are lower, then our disappointment will be lower as well. And we could handle that. A lot of people live like this for years, sometimes forever. And I find myself doing this recently. And the problem is that if somebody had asked me during this time period if I was a dreamer, I would have said, oh yes. I'm a dreamer. Yes, of course I am. I have thousands of dreams. I'm dreaming right now as you're talking to me. But it wasn't true. I thought I was dreaming. But the reality was I was having a dress rehearsal for disappointment. Let me say that again so you can hear me. I thought I was dreaming. But in reality, I was having a dress rehearsal for disappointment. We all know what a dress rehearsal is. For a wedding, a recital, a performance, we run through everything so that we're prepared for what's coming. And there's nothing wrong with preparation, but friends, life is not a dress rehearsal. Life is not a dress rehearsal. And if we spend all of our time, all of our lives, dress rehearsing for catastrophe, trying to manage our disappointment, hoping to minimize devastation in our lives, we will eventually lose the ability to dream and miss out on the joy of living that comes with dreaming. Brene Brown once said that instead of allowing ourselves to experience joy, many of us are having a constant dress rehearsal for tragedy. Catastrophizing is something some folks call it that. We don't dream because we're afraid that if our dreams fall apart, we'll be even more disappointed and devastated than if we had not dreamt at all. So we settle for small hopes, small dreams, and we end up staying at the dress rehearsal forever and not really living. As a people possessed by a dream, our church has a long and illustrious history as an inclusive community for spirituality and social justice. 
And we've made a big impact in the world and gained a lot of notoriety for what we've done and who we've been. But one of my professors at Duke had this saying that has always stuck with me. He said, the worst thing that ever happened to Baptists in the South is that they were successful. The worst thing that ever happened to Baptists in the South is that they were successful. The problem with being successful is that it can have the same effect as constant disappointment. This is the ironic thing. When we're truly successful at something, we often stop dreaming as well. We stop dreaming about the future because we want to replicate the success we've had in the past, and so we do the same thing that we've always done over and over again, hoping that that success will return. This is one of the reasons why in my first sermon here eight years ago, I said that as a community of dreamers, we must ask ourselves this question every year. Are our dreams for the future of this church bigger than our dreams of the past? Are our dreams for the future of this church bigger than our dreams of the past? Dreaming is always a risky endeavor. It requires courage because there's always the possibility of failure and disappointment that comes along with it. But the purpose of dreaming is not simply so that our dreams will come true. The act of dreaming itself has its own purpose, its own power. As the story of the Magi in the Gospel of Matthew teaches us, Dreaming is something that is sacred and holy in and of itself. Dreaming is an act of resistance. Dreaming is an activity that is imposed to the logic and impulse of empire. Dreaming can be an antidote to violence. Dreaming can be life-giving, life-saving, and liberating as an occupation. Dreaming is one of the primary ways that we stay in tune with the movement of God in our lives and in history and begin to envision a new and better world for everyone. Dreaming in and of itself is significant and can lead to an experience of joy even if those dreams never come true. Because dreams defy the rules of the world. They defy the ground rules, they defy physics, they defy the way things are in the world today and testify to the possibility that something else can always happen. Something can always change. Something new can always come. Dreams are the way that we manifest hope. Queer Chinese American writer and designer Nina Chun Yuchi kept a dream journal for a year. Her goal was to try to learn how to lucid dream and to share her adventures in dreaming with her family and friends. And she did this for a year. And then she went back and read through her journal and she discovered something very unexpected. And she writes, I realized in reading my own journal that my dreams aren't simply a way for me to escape the realities of the tangible world. They are also a simultaneous reality that I enter into in my slumber. It is a purposeful act of self-care and forgiveness, allowing myself to sleep and to explore the depths of my relationships and emotions and humor was, was an opportunity to allow myself to be whole. And so she writes, dreams are political. They're an act of defiance against the hegemonies of our world, allowing the mind to mold and explore its own worlds without the oppressive constraints of time and space. Like science fiction or a fantasy novel, dreams don't rely on the conditions of the present reality to forge new identities and communities. And so marginalized people are free to imagine an emancipated world 
in which colonized powers don't exist anymore, or which humans have the chance to repair their relationship with the material world. Dreaming is a liberating experience, she writes. The essence of dreams begins to beckon a resistance framework because dreams are illogical and unrealistic, untethered to time and space with endless possibilities that challenge the boundaries of our mind and imagination. And she cautions us, this isn't to say that dreaming is a perfect practice, nor can it be the sole method of our resistance in the struggle for liberation. We can't become trapped only in the fantastical utopias of our mind and ignore the material conditions of reality, no. However, once we reject the idea that we are bound to this present time and space, we can also recognize that we have the capacity to shape the future that we want to live in. That's what dreams have the ability to do. When we inevitably unearth and disseminate our histories of things like revolution and class consciousness and racial solidarity, they no longer need to invade or overrun the present. Instead, those histories can serve as the remembrances that we are capable of building better futures if we want to. That we can reject the temporal structures that confine us. It's important to notice in the story who has dreams and who doesn't. Mary and Joseph dream, the Magi dream, but Herod and the chief priests and scribes, they don't have any dreams, at least none that were shared in this story. Actually, what we're told is that all they had was fear and anger. And the message here for us is obvious. We must always have a dream. And we must nurture that dream, and we must never stop dreaming. We must continue striving to listen for and to live out God's dream for us and for our world, because if we lose our ability to dream, if we cannot, if we will not dream, then like Herod and the chief priests and the scribes, we will be left with nothing but fear and anger. That's the opposite of dreaming. Without a dream, all we have is our worst impulses. Without a dream, all we have is the empire and its schemes. Without a dream, all we have is the potential for unending violence. Without a dream, all we have is disappointment and devastation and death. So we have to have a dream, and we have to keep on dreaming. The story of Jesus began with a dream, a dream that came to a caravan of Persian dreamers, warning them not to return to King Herod. The Magi followed that dream, and they left for their own country by another road, defying the order of the king and leaving room for God's gift of life and liberation to grow more fully into the world. Christmas, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, it began with a dream, a dream that led to a choice and a choice that led to an act of resistance. The choice of the Magi is the same choice that we face in our day. The same choice as it was in the time of Jesus. Will we follow Herod or will we follow our dreams? Will we follow the, the logic and impulse of empire or will we be dreamers? Will we settle for the way things are or will we be people who dream of a better future? Will we be content with the status quo or will we engage in the risky and revolutionary act of the Magi and the founders of this church and dream and keep on dreaming? And will we dream only of a glorious past or will we also dream of a glorious future? Will we continue to live in a never-ending dress rehearsal for disappointment and devastation or will we allow ourselves to be dreamers?
The choice is ours. But what we know is that the measure of our courage and our faith will be determined by our willingness to dream. Despite the possibilities of disappointment or the realities of disappointment and devastation that will come, and to keep on dreaming even when we face it. The call of epiphany of the magi of the star is to dream and to keep on dreaming and to follow your dreams because Christmas is for dreamers. The gospel is for dreamers. Good news is for dreamers. Liberation is for dreamers. The future is for dreamers. Jesus is for dreamers. So may we leave the dress rehearsals behind us and live like there's nothing to fear so that together we can find the overwhelming joy that comes with a life filled with dreams. Amen.